0: thanks for tuning in to today's sermon from faith community church joyfully serving the city of providence rhode island as the power of god for salvation we believe the gospel is essential in building up the faith of the saints we pray this proclamation of the word will enlighten both your hearts and minds so john chapter 4 we're going to be in verses 27 we're going to work our way down to verse 42. So verse 27 down to verse 42. And before we read, does anybody, anyone familiar with the Mars Candy Company? What kind of candy bars are they famous for? Anybody, any, any thoughts? M&M's, anything else? Mars Bar, yes. Milky Way, anything else? Uh, I don't, I don't think that's Kit Kat. What was that, weird. Yeah, chocolate is weird. Hershey? What? <laughs> no, Kit Kats are excellent. Excellent choice. Oh, if you haven't had a fast break, oh, seriously, after service, buy a fast break. I introduced them to Brie last year and she was shocked. She had never had any up until then. They're phenomenal, amazing, worth every penny. What's your contract Uh Huh? What, what's your contract worth? Oh, I get zero dollars for that. They should. I mean, I'd be a great salesman. Uh, (laughs) I know. I, well, yeah. Uh, But uh, so we're going to get back on track. Uh, The Mars Candy Company, right? So some of the things we've talked about, also Skittles and and Twix. But they were started, this company, its origins actually start with Frank Mars, go figure, Mars is the last name, uh, his mom. So when they were growing up, his mom, taught him how to make chocolate. And so just as a way for them to bond, uh, they would make chocolate together. And little did they know that this would become eventually a billion dollar business. Frank Mars would, uh, in his early 20s, go from selling candy out of his kitchen to making $100,000 in a single year uh, in the 1910s. So it's a a lot of money. It's a a lot of money now. It's It's a lot more money then. And he would think he had peaked, but this wouldn't actually happen until he brought his son, Forrester, into the business. In 1923, at 18 years old, his, his son, Forrest, made his first contribution by co-creating the Milky Way. So this bar was made by Forrester and his dad uh, in 1923. It was the first chocolate bar the company made that's still sold today. When Frank died in 1934, Forrest, his son, would actually take over the company and within 10 years, he would turn the company into a billion dollar business. And so it would actually be through Forrest, the son, that the Mars Candy Company would go to astronomical heights. And what you should recognize pretty quickly in the story of Mars is, again, that the work didn't start with Forrest. It didn't even begin with his dad, Frank. It actually began one generation before that with his grandmother. Her, just looking to bond of her son, would be the seeds planted in a work that would become, what we know today, a billion-dollar business. In some ways, Forrester would reap where he did not labor. He would step into a work that was already being done and being prepared, a made foundation, and with some work would reap the benefits of their work. As we come to John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42, we reach the end of Jesus' encounter and conversation with the Samaritan woman. We see how her response will cause a whole town to be changed. And we'll also see how Jesus uses this to show the disciples that seeds have been planted long ago, and our a harvest of souls for God, for God are ready to be harvested. And so here we'll be asked, Whether or not we're hungry for God in the same way Jesus is. And if we are, then we should look up and see the harvest, soul winning is ready for reaping. So let's read John chapter 4, verse 27 to 42. Am I blocking the verses? Would you like me to move? This is the word of the Lord. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me in to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months and comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you give us clarity, that you'd help us to see that as we look up and around, where you've placed us, that the harvest is, is ready, it's white. And we are called to go and reap what has already been sown. And so we pray that you'd help us to see that, to have an urgency and a humility because of it. Uh, we pray that in the preaching of your word, I would decrease, that Christ would increase. In your name we pray, amen. If you've ever done a riddle room, you'll know that the best feeling, and there's one in Warwick, I don't know if you guys have done that one, but you'll know that the best feeling actually comes only after the struggle. And so you're placed in a room with a single clue and you have to, with that clue, examine the pieces put together in that room and figure out what it means you have to solve it. And this can be a arduous process and hopefully you've brought some friends and so you're talking through this, you're looking at in four clues around the room, you search up and down, Hopefully it doesn't take too long because I think they actually kick you out after a while. But suddenly one of you gets it. You figure it out. You've put the pieces together. The light bulb goes off and you solve what might be the first part or the last part of the challenge. And that moment is a moment of joy. It's a moment of excitement and elation because you have finally understood what was so confusing. What was not put together has now finally been put together. This might be similar to what the Samaritan woman had gone through in verses 27 to 30. During the hottest part of the day, she she meets a man, a Jewish man, who asks her, a Samaritan, for water. Then this mysterious man, willing to break all kinds of social stigma, offers her water. Water, even though he was the one originally asking for some. And not just any water. He claims that this is living water able to cause her to not be thirsty forevermore. Intrigued, she asks for some, but then this man tells her to go get your man, get your husband. But she reveals then to not have one, but he already knows that. And more than that, he reveals to her that she's had multiple husbands and the guy she's with right now is not her husband. Even more intrigued, she brings up the most controversial conversation starter of the day. Where do we worship God? on the Samaritan mountain or the Jewish temple? And to her surprise, Jesus' answer is no. Because there is a time coming that is now that worshiping God won't be about where you go, but who you know, Jesus, the Messiah. And in a climactic moment, at the end of their conversation, Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. He does this to an unnamed enemy of the Jew that he is the Savior that even the Samaritans are waiting for. The light bulb goes off. She sees what she couldn't see or hear up until that very moment. So what does she do? Well, as we get to verse 27, we get to a commercial break. We read that just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Just as Jesus reveals himself to the woman, the disciples show up, having gotten back from town uh, after grocery shopping, then probably assuming Jesus is just, you know, resting, chilling. Instead, to their shock, he's talking with a woman. And a Samaritan woman at that. And though they don't say it out loud, John lets us know exactly what they're thinking. What do you seek? Directed at the woman, what do you want? Why are you talking to Jesus? And why are you talking with her? Directed, perhaps, at Jesus. Jesus, why would you be talking to a a woman, and a Samaritan woman? Again, this is written in a time where some thought for a rabbi to talk that much of a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time, and at worst, a diversion from studying the Torah. So you can imagine how they would have seen Jesus talking to a mixed-race Samaritan who's worshiping Yahweh the wrong way. Their thoughts reveal to us, yes, what they think, but also that they are blind to who Jesus is and what he came for. They ask, what does she seek? Because they assume ulterior motives, not recognizing that it's actually God who ordained this meeting to happen. First 23 tells us that God is actually searching for people that he's seeking, not not Jews, not Samaritans, but those who worship in spirit and truth. Meaning anyone who has received the new birth and given a brand new heart through belief in Jesus, which would mean everyone can qualify, including a woman with a messy past outside of ethnic Israel. If you remember, uh, the disciples' questioning is very similar to the Samaritan's own questioning. Of how Jesus, a Jew, could be talking to her, a Samaritan. It shows all of us how blind we can be in our flesh by prejudices, selfishness, and really just the brokenness of the world and its systems. That the disciples' blindness to the work, that we should see that the disciples' blindness to what God was doing, is doing, is really even us. That we do the very same thing. We ask the same kinds of questions. We ask, why is that person at church? What do they want here? They they can't be here for the right reasons. We shouldn't waste our time on those people. They're a lost cause. We fail to see the value that God has put on people, put on souls that He created and how He might be bringing them to find the living water. Become a true worshiper who lives the quality of eternal life in His fullness. In the church I grew up in, uh, when I was doing youth ministry there, uh, there was one Sunday where uh, a teen had come to church really for the first time, and one of the sisters, the older sisters of the church, was appalled. She was really, really upset. And the reason why was because he was wearing a hat. And you think that's funny, but in the church I grew up in, that was actually a big deal with some of our older saints. It was seen as a sign of disrespect, and y- you understand why. But she was so mad about this that she actually pulled me aside to complain about the upcoming generation, how we're a lost cause and all that good stuff, and to ask what was going to be done about this problem. Now, there could be truth to what she's saying. There there really could be. There could be a a sense of respecting the place we're in and all those things that could be true. But this is still devastating because there's a point being missed that I, I think in different ways we all can That this young man, this, this guy, decided of his own volition to come to church, to engage with Jesus. And if that's not enough to move us, then there might be something wrong with us. The way we're viewing what church and what coming to God should look and be like. That we should understand on a deeper level that God is not searching for PhDs for cleaned up people, for mild mannered people, not even just messy people for messy people's sake, that God is searching for those to worship in spirit and truth. That's only something that happens through the spirit. So there's nothing that you bring to the table or do not bring to the table that qualifies or disqualifies you from coming to the table. It is God who brings you to the table. Anyone and everyone can come And so we should be eager any time we see the work of God happening in somebody's life. That our prayer should be that we should see with the eyes of Jesus that our human instinct and evaluations of people would diminish, that that would grow, fall, fade into the background. That instead we would see people who are thirsty for living water, hungry for the food God can provide in himself so that we can bring them to the source. We come back to the Samaritan woman in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The woman at the revelation Jesus has brought leaves without accomplishing the one thing she came for, water. More than that, she leaves her water jar behind. Maybe this is a picture of that that she's discovered something better. Living water. With her thirst quenched, she no longer needs that Walmart brand water. She goes back to town and she calls out to her neighbors. And don't let it miss you that, that she's going back to the town With the same people, she came to the well at the hottest point of day to avoid. She's going to those people, and she says, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, we read the passage. Jesus didn't tell her all that she did, but I think what that's meant to communicate is the impact of Jesus' words and Revelation. And so just like that, we've met our first Gentile woman evangelist that this woman has encountered the revealed God in the flesh, Jesus, even if she doesn't know all that that means, she knows this. He is the promised Savior, the Messiah. And when you meet the promised Savior, Jesus, you cannot leave unaffected, unmoved. No, instead you leave contagious. You leave wanting to spread, in a good way, what you've encountered. She says, Come. It's an invitation for everyone to see and bear witness to what she has come to realize and see. The Messiah, the Christ that she has heard about and read about, this might be, no, this is Him. Her question, can this be the Christ, really is an invitation for people to come and see what she's come to believe. I think sometimes the, 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 The best evangelists are new Christians, new believers. Because despite not knowing everything we might know as we've walked with the Lord in this life, all the things that we've perhaps memorized or engaged with in theological thought, they have maybe the most important thing in the forefront of their mind. Jesus Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus died for me on the cross for my sins that I could have eternal life. See a man who told me all that I ever did. That's it. That's all she says. It's all she says. A simple, he saw me for who I was. You got to see him. I think as we walk with the Lord longer and longer, we kind of lose the simplicity to our faith. We get jaded. We lose that fire and passion. We become more concerned about making sure we have all the right arguments or know enough about someone else's faith before we engage with them. Or we're worried that it'll be too awkward or or embarrassing. And so we request God provide all the right parameters before we approach somebody. All the right conditions for evangelism. But when you first become a Christian, in some ways the most important part is what's most apparent. That Jesus is Savior and Lord. He is our hope and others need to know that. That He has changed us in forever kind of ways that demand we share and point others to Him? Are we unmoved by the work of Jesus? Does who He is, what He did, what He's doing excite us? If it doesn't, let's pray that that would change, that God would help our affections change, that He would give us an excitement and a passion and a desire to share what we've received. Eternal life, living water that God would remind us of our first love, that we would have, again, that light bulb moment, that moment of coming to faith, that God would help you remember it, that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Meanwhile, look at verse 31. John brings us away from our evangelist, the Samaritan woman, and brings us back to Jesus and his disciples where we'll see that the harvest is ready. So verses 31 to 38, the harvest is ready is ready. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? If you remember at the beginning of this chapter, we met a tired Jesus, weary, hungry, thirsty. His disciples had actually gone into town to pick up some food so you can imagine their surprise when Jesus says, "Now nah, don't worry about it. I got food you don't know about. I'd be like, well, then why'd you send us to town? Yeah. <laughs> Disciples were, I think, rightly confused. They had left to get food for Jesus. And so they come back and hear him say this and miss what is maybe obvious to us, that these words have spiritual meaning to them. That Jesus' words often carry, as we've seen through the Gospel of John, spiritual meaning, not simply physical. And so we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples in their own confusion. Now, having been there for the conversation with the Samaritan woman, and there are just times, honestly, that Jesus intentionally speaks in a way that may not be easily understood immediately because he's looking to make a point. And we see that in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish His work. And so He's doing it again. In His dismissal of physical food the disciples have brought, He points them to a greater truth, a a greater need, food that sustains in a way no earthly meal, Chick-fil-A, cannot do. And that's good. That's good. Jesus is using what is basic nourishment for us to convey something even more basic and nourishing for us, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is hungry, but he's hungry for the work of God, to know it and to accomplish it. Jesus is living out the words found in Job 23.12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Again, it's important to see as you read the Gospels and recognize Jesus is both fully man and fully God, but he is showing us here that he walked perfectly as a human being, living for the sustaining nourishment of the Father. He knew the truth found in Deuteronomy 8.3, that God had to test and demonstrate through Israel, but he knew it, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That our most basic nourishment, our most basic need doesn't come from the eggs we had for breakfast, the bacon, but God himself. Jesus is supplied more greatly by walking in the will of God than he is any food that his disciples have brought. And so this question is directed towards them, and I think it's directed towards us. Are, Are we hungry like Jesus for God? Are we fed by his word? Do we crave to do his will and accomplish the works he set aside for you specifically and for us as a church? Are our lives shaped by this? Our lives are shaped by our needs, right? We get hungry, so we eat. That's why we, we grow, go grocery shopping. We stop by a fast food restaurant to get food because we have a need. We want to eat. We need money to pay our rent, to, to pay our bills. And so to meet that need, what do we do? We, we go to work. We make money. We shape our lives around our needs. And so Jesus is making the point that that more basic than food, a greater need for Him is to walk in the will of the Father to accomplish His works. How how are our lives shaped by this? What does a life shaped by the truth that God's will, the work He sets for us, is a basic need for us to crave and to have? How would that change the way you pray? How would that change the way you engage and interact with your Bible? How would that change the way you engage the church with its people? The way you engage work, the home. If you believe God's will and the work He sets aside for you and the church is a basic need that provides nourishment for your life. Question four of the New City Catechism asks us, how and why did God create us? The first part of that answer is that God created us male and female in his own image to know him, to love him, to live for him, and glorify him. Our most basic functions as humans created by God is to be a people for God. Jesus shows us what it means to be fully human, truly human, and the purest expression by living this out. I think the encouragement for us is, again, to ask how, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can make this more real and clearly seen in our own lives. Not primarily because eyes are on us, though they are, and God uses that to be a witness, but because if what Jesus is saying is true, then some of your most basic needs are are meant to be met in the will of God in accomplishing the works that He sets for you if walking in the will of God and accomplishing His work is all the food Jesus needs, what we see in verse 35-38 through is a description of the meal. This is the work that sustains those of us found in God. It's the reaping of souls for the kingdom of God. A work that has been prepared by those who come before us. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Leaning on some commonly understood imagery, Jesus is making an eschatological point. He's making it a, a sort of uh, the end is near kind of point. That we are part of God's plan to see people come to know Jesus. And so as we look around, we should recognize that the part of the plan where we see people come to Jesus is right now. In the same way, uh, someone might look around, look at, look at the seasons, look at their farm, and say, "Ah, oh, well, there's still four more months before it's time to, to reap the harvest here. We might look at the world around us and say, I mean, are people really ready to hear about Jesus? Are people really prepared to, to be confronted about their sin, to see that their brokenness can only be filled by Christ, that the gaps in life can only be solved by Him? Jesus' answer is, you need to look up and see with your own eyes that it's time right now. That the harvest is ripe for picking. That souls are ready to be brought to Jesus to know the living God. And how do we know that Jesus is actually saying this with this illustration? I think we can see that in our immediate context. That right before this, Jesus, his conversation with the woman at the well, which at the end has Jesus revealing that he is the Messiah, our Savior. This revelation has brought belief to her that's infectious. She then goes to the town, and after this section, we we see in verses 39 to 42, that the whole town comes to hear and receive the good news about Jesus. And we see many of them believe. So that supports our interpretation of Jesus' illustration here. We can also go to the the other Gospels to help. Uh, Both Matthew and Luke use similar imagery to to bring this picture in mind. We're going to look at Matthew 9, 35-37. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the Gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here we're told that the harvest is plenty, that there are many longing in need of the good news that Jesus brings, that the problem isn't that there isn't enough work to do. This isn't union work. We need more laborers because we're actually dealing with a staff shortage. And so Jesus says, pray for more. Pray for more in the kingdom of God, more laborers to do the work of reaping the harvest. What a reminder for, I think, all of us that we are needed, all of us, each and every single one of us, for the work of reaping the harvest, of seeing people brought to know Jesus. That it isn't the work solely of the pastor to go out there and see souls brought to Christ. It isn't only the work of those gifted or spiritual in the church who are called to work the fields. No, every single one of us are called to do the work. All of us are called to reap the harvest. Jesus' word should encourage us even as we hear and read of a declining church in America. A declining church in the West at large. Because if what Jesus is saying is true, despite what the numbers are saying, there are many people in our neighborhood even who are waiting to hear the gospel. Who God has prepared to receive the good news of Jesus. And the question is, do we see them? Are we looking up and looking around to see these people? Jesus wants us to do that, not with eyes like the disciples, marked with suspicion and confusion, but eyes like Christ that sees image bearers who need to be brought to living water. That we need to recognize that the fields are not only here either in our neighborhood. That we can look, again, around our workplaces at our coworkers, that as parents we can look at our home, at our children, students, you can look around your classroom, that wherever God has placed us, he is saying there are image bearers there. The harvest is white. Get to reaping. Verse 36 is a callback to a promise found in the Old Testament. John writes, already, Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Even now, those who reap are cashing in, seeing the fruit of what's been planted, and this brings joy to those who reap and those who have done the work of sowing already. This brings us to Amos chapter 9, verse 13. We read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, a promise is being made, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So a picture is being drawn here of fertility and prosperity. It's a promise that is now being fulfilled as Jesus speaks, a a time has come because of the ministry of Jesus, inaugurated, started by Him, where sowing and reaping, are now coming together for harvesting of the crop, which is the Christian community. It's, it's those who are followers of Jesus. In some ways, Jesus is saying that there is no better time to start than now. Invest yourself in the work because people are already seeing amazing returns. Verse 37, for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus' food is to do the will of God and to accomplish His work. This is His nourishment. And what does that look like exactly? Did you try again? No is to go into the fields because they are white, ready for harvest. Meaning God's people who's, who he's searching for have been readied and prepared. They're ripe to hear the gospel. So we go, but we should also recognize we're told here who has come before us. One sows and another reaps. It's hard to know with these two verses who Jesus might have in mind here, but you can't help but think of the prophets found in the pages of the Old Testament who pointed again and again to the promises of Jesus. What should come immediately to mind is the mission and work of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare people's hearts to receive Jesus. Either way, Jesus is letting us know that you get to reap what you didn't sow. They prep the food, they preheat the oven, They got it all ready for you. You get to just put it in. This should give us both an urgency because it's ready to get to work, while also giving us a humility as we realize we are beneficiaries of the work God has already done. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. One of the biggest no-nos that you can commit is something that maybe you've experienced uh, in the wintertime. But after a big snowstorm really hits, if you live on a busy street, and it's time to get out there and shovel, after backbreaking shoveling, you get into your car, you get to work, you come back, and someone took your spot. It's awful. It's an awful feeling. Uh, In Fall River, at least, I don't know if they did it in Providence, people would put chairs in their spot, or like cones, to make sure people wouldn't steal it. Right? Because why? Because what I labored for, you don't get to reap. No, no, no. I get to benefit from what I... Labored from. I worked painfully hard to make sure it would not be stolen. And yet, here Jesus is telling us, church, that we get to be the beneficiaries of the work that's been done by others. That as we bring the gospel to those around us, that we would see that this is something that's already been prepared and ready for us. That we should see this most greatly in the work that Jesus has done and accomplished. That as Jesus has worked the will of the Father in his obedience, as Jesus labored on the cross, that with every struggling breath taking on the full wrath of God for our sins, that he died, that this work was done that we might live, that he rose that we might know that we have life secured in him. Now we enter into the finished labor of Jesus as we go around and bring the good news of the gospel. And there's more good news as we go out into the fields. The Holy Spirit goes before us. He goes and prepares the hearts of people to hear and receive the good news of Christ. We enjoy the benefits of saints who've come before us, but also of the Godhead who goes before us, the Trinity. All we must do, all we're called to do is to obey the call of Jesus and the great commission to reap. The harvest. Jesus' illustration here comes to life in verses 39 to 42, proof of the harvest. Verses 39 to 42, proof of the harvest. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Now, the disciples could actually see the work for themselves. And the incredible part of this is that the people he would demonstrate this with were the Samaritans, their natural enemy. These would be the example of God's reaping, soul-winning work. That word testimony we, we read is now being used for what the woman has spoken to the Samaritans back at town. And it's powerful in what it's meant to convey. She is testifying, like one who stands in court to to what she's come to know as the truth. Jesus is the Christ. Her testimony, the witness of this woman with a messy and checkered past, moves the town not just with curiosity, but even belief. This speaks to what Jesus was saying. How is it that a town could seemingly listen to the untrustworthy testimony of this woman and come on the other side believing. Because God is already prepared. He has already made the fields ready for the gospel. I also hope that you see in her, her testimony, her witness, the importance of us doing the same thing. That we would realize that we are called to share as she has shared. But that we would also see that in sharing, the power of our, our witness is in Jesus, not in us. That our testimonies are actually incomplete and they don't include the work and name of Jesus who has taken our sinfulness, our brokenness, our hunger and thirst and given us everlasting water. That our stories are all different and powerful in different ways but the, the, the true power of our testimonies in the same good news of Jesus. When testified alongside our unique stories can do incredible work In the lives of others. The Samaritans are the case example that people who would have seen a Jew as an enemy, especially a teacher like Jesus, instead invite him to stay with them for a couple of days. We read in 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Some had believed, but many were curious. And in hearing the words of Jesus for themselves, many more we read believe, because they have seen for themselves that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. I think we might encourage those in our lives who are not believers, that maybe are curious about Jesus, about who he is and what he claims to be, to listen to the testimonies of other Christians, whether it be you sharing yours or others you know, that they would hear the testimony, the work of Jesus in someone's life, that they would be challenged and encouraged to go investigate his words for themselves. That you might even walk alongside them and look at his words and study them for the sake of really seeing if Jesus is who he says he is. If he is who the Samaritans have come to found, he is the Messiah. The final words of this section make a powerful statement. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. What is established here is is transformative for our entire world. That salvation is God's plan for everybody, not just for the Jews. Jesus' large scale harvest among the Samaritans is the first showing of the universal scope of his saving mission for the world. When we read when we read in John chapter three and (coughs) four, are the words spoken in Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you've not noticed, this has been the pattern of Jesus' mission according to the Gospel of John. From Judea, Nicodemus, now Samaria with the woman. And in the last section of chapter 4, Jesus will minister to an official in the healing of his son, a Gentile. So we've seen in chapters 3 and 4 of John that Jesus' intention is not just that one would be saved, but that the world would come to know the truth of the gospel. The gospel of John anticipates the post-Pentecost mission of the early church and our mission to go out into the fields and harvest souls for Christ. Jesus has shown his disciples that the spiritual harvest it'll be found in the most unlikely of places. Like a well in the middle of the, day, of the day with a woman whose past is messy. But God's search for people is not being done with our metrics in mind. His love is for the world. His Son was sent that all might hear and even receive Him. And if we're hungry for God to do His will and work, then we must look up and see that the harvest Soul winning, soul bringing to God that is ready for reaping. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42, for this incredible moment where Jesus shows us that his plans of salvation are not limited to a people group, but all groups, all peoples, and all are to be given an opportunity to hear and receive the gospel, and that this great and good work has been prepared and readied for us, that the harvests are white, they are ready for reaping, and that we get to benefit as Christians from the work of the prophets, of John the Baptist, of Jesus and the Spirit, and even our our spiritual grandmothers and grandfathers. We pray, God, that you give us an urgency, a desire, and a hunger to, to live out the will and work of God. Would you put that in us, God? Would you give us a, an imagination for it that we would hunger to do that in our, our neighborhood, as a church, in our homes, as families, in our workplaces, as employees, as in our schools, as students, Lord, in whatever area and arena of life that you have us, God, would you give us a hunger to do the work that you've set before us? In your name we pray. Amen.